I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 135. Uh, We have a, a few more Sundays here in the Psalms, and today we will be in Psalm 135. We know that, I'm sure you know full well, that it is good and it is right to worship the Lord, to praise the Lord gladly. And yet, even knowing that, we still have often a difficult time of it. We have a hard time getting our brains focused. We have a hard time getting our souls and affections appropriately uh, geared up towards worshiping God. Psalm 135 comes to us and it not only calls us to worship, uh, but also provides a number of reasons why this is right and good. And, and so this psalm addresses our minds um, and stirs the soul to produce worship that is appropriate. And so I want to begin by reading this together, and then we will go through the psalm. So uh, Psalm 135, we'll read this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I just want to make a few comments about the overall structure of this passage before we dive into the specifics. So the psalm begins in verses 1 to 4 with a call, a summons to worship. In verses 3 to 4, begin to to give us some of the reasons why we, uh, why it's good and right to praise the Lord. And then these reasons are developed throughout the rest of the psalm, particularly verses 5 through 18. Uh, first, in verses 5 to 7, we see the greatness of God over all things. 
Then we have the greatness of God in both judgment and salvation in verses 8 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 18, we see the vanity of idols. So this section, verses 15 to 18, it, it corresponds with verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7 about the true God, verses 15 and 8 to 18, contrast with the uh, false gods, these idols. And then verses 19 to 21, it closes again with another uh, call, a final call to worship. And so it begins with a call to worship, and then it closes with the same. And in between there, we have all these reasons uh, why this praise is fitting and appropriate. And so let's, uh, let's begin uh, first by looking at this call to, to praise in verses 1 to 4. So it, it begins in verse 1. It says, praise the Lord. Now, this is just one Hebrew word, and it's one that you all have heard. It's the word hallelujah. Uh, so if you, you didn't know, maybe kids, um, maybe you've never heard this before, or, or adults too, uh, but the word hallelujah, which we sing a lot, it was in at least one of the songs that we sang earlier, if not a couple of them. Uh, this word means praise the Lord. That's what it means. It's a Hebrew word, praise the Lord. Hallelujah is praise, and Yah is short for Yahweh, and so it's praise the Lord. So it starts, hallelujah, and then it adds, praise the name of the Lord. So one's name speaks of their reputation and the character of the person. If, if, if someone says to you that another individual has a good name, then you would know that person has a pretty good reputation and generally is is well thought of, and is perhaps upstanding, has a good character. Whenever I, when I, when I read this, and, and we're called to worship the name of the Lord, I, I, I instinctively think of what we find in Exodus 33 and 34, the passage that we read uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, there, if you remember, Moses, they're at, the, Moses and Israel are, are at Mount Sinai, and Moses asked to see the glory of God. And the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by, and he will just see his back, is what he tells Moses. Uh, but he tells him in verse uh, 19 of Exodus 33, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim to you my name, the Lord, or, or Yahweh. So he's going to proclaim his name to Moses, and then it goes on, and in verse 30, in chapter 34, verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so this, this is God's name being proclaimed. Who is this God? He is the one who is merciful and gracious, but also just. He doesn't just clear the guilty. He's not just going to sweep sins under the rug. This is who the Lord is. He is the one who is merciful, but also just. 
And indeed, this is what this very Psalm 135 is going to extol for us. Particularly, we'll see that in verses 8 to 14. That God has indeed demonstrated both his justice in his judgments of Israel's enemies, namely Egypt, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, Og, Sihon. God demonstrates his justice in that. He's not clearly guilty, but also he demonstrates his mercy, that he has chosen Israel to show mercy to them. This is the name of the Lord, merciful and just. And so we're told, praise the name of the Lord, and it continues, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. So this psalm summons those who are objects of God's mercy to give him praise. And specifically, here, he's addressing the one who is standing in the temple or in the courts of the temple to do this very thing, to worship. So, it it is possible that this psalm, Psalm 135, is intentionally positioned here right after these 15 songs of ascent. So if you remember from last week, when we talked about the Songs of Ascent, probably this is best understood as being a group of psalms that were commonly sung and recited as Israelites were uh, making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they'd worked their way up to the city of Jerusalem. And now, when we get to Psalm 134, which I read at the start of the service, and now into Psalm 135, it's very likely that this is positioned here as a way of saying, you know, it's, it's as if they've now arrived at Jerusalem, they're at the temple, and what do they do now? They're called to worship the Lord, to praise Him. And certainly, this is the appropriate response of the Lord's people, to worship God. Verses 3 to 4 begin to provide reasons for praising the Lord. Reasons which serve as a, th- a thesis, although with the Psalms, we're looking at poetry, and uh, I, don't think, I, I don't think you're ever supposed to use the word thesis when we're talking about poetry. I think that's far too academic of a word. Um, some of you who love poetry might be offended by me saying that, but the main idea or the main theme uh, is, 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 I think, um, brought to us here, certainly in all four of these verses, but particularly verses 3 to 4. What's said here is going to be developed through the rest of the psalm. And so verse 3 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. So we're told that the Lord is good. Now God's goodness can refer to his moral perfection. Certainly Jesus for example, when he says that only, that only God is good, God alone is good, um, that's, that's, I think, what he has in mind there. But his goodness can also speak to God's kindness, to his benevolence, to his forgiveness, his grace, his, his mercy. These are all aspects of his goodness. And in the Exodus 34 passage read earlier, God said that his, his goodness would pass before Moses. And then his name was proclaimed, which included the declaration of his mercy, of his grace, of his slowness to anger. That is, he's, he's revealing to Moses his goodness. 
And again, we'll see this expounded in this text here in, in, in Psalm 135 as we continue to go. He's good in his mercy, showing mercy to people, but also we see his goodness in creation. That in verse 7, we're told he is the God who controls the rain. He sends the rain, which is certainly a demonstration of God's power, but it's more than that as well. It is a necessity, rain is, for human flourishing. And therefore, it likewise is a demonstration of God's goodness, of his care for his creation. And so God's name is to be sung to, he is to be praised because his name is pleasant, his name is delightful, it's beautiful, he is good, that's who he is. And then verse 4 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. He's good, his name is pleasant, he has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. So here again, this reasoning for Worship. God has chosen a people for his own possession, to belong to him. You think of Abram. Abram was called out of the world by God's good pleasure, singled out to, for God to, to make a nation out of him that would be, belong to the Lord. And then, of course, Abram had Isaac. The promise was repeated to him. And then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob was chosen by the Lord over his brother Esau for God's own reasons and for God's own purposes. Jacob was chosen. He was eventually renamed Israel, and from him the entire nation of Israel would descend. And notice, it's not that God redeemed them simply so that they could enjoy themselves. Rather, to bring them to himself. He saved them, he called them, he created a nation to make them his own, his possession. So even if you think of the Exodus, for example, uh, when, when Moses goes, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, they're saying, let my people go. Why? So we may go worship our God in the wilderness. It's not just... So that, so that the people can just do whatever they want or just enjoy themselves. It's, they're being redeemed to now belong to God. They are His. So we have this call to praise. We're called to worship the one who is good, the one who is merciful, the one who is just, the one who has saved the people for Himself. Thus it is absolutely right and good for His own people to praise him. This is no less true today as it was when this psalm was written. And so now as we get to verse 5, the psalm begins to just, I think, develop the reasons to praise the Lord further. And so verses 5 to 7 now, they instruct us to praise the Lord because he is above all and rules in his sovereign wisdom. To praise the Lord because he is above all and he rules in his sovereign wisdom. Uh, verse 5 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Now this line is, is, a, is a quote, seems to be a quote from, it's almost the exact same thing that Jethro says in Exodus 18. Jethro, if you, if you remember, it was Moses' father-in-law. And when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, Jethro met with Moses. Moses recounted to him in Exodus 18 all that the Lord had done for them in redeeming them out of Egypt and passing through the sea. 
all these great things. And Jethro's conclusion, this priest of Midian, uh, this Midianite priest, he concluded this, this very reality that he knew now oh, that the Lord is God above all gods. But here in this psalm, this is not simply a, a quote of a previous Old Testament text. I do think the psalmist is steeped in Exodus, I think, and, and indeed all the, the law. He, he knows what Jethro said. I think he's quoting him, but it's not just a nice quote to add into this nice piece of poetry. The psalmist says, For I know. For I know that the Lord is great. This is not just Jethro's statement. The psalmist knows it. He has experienced this knowledge of who God is. I know he is great and above all gods. Do you know the greatness of God? Do you believe that he is great and above all other great things, seemingly great things, above all gods? Or is God's greatness just a confession on paper? Or is God's greatness just something that happens to make its way into certain songs you might sing? The psalmist says, I I know that the Lord is great. And he continues, he goes on to describe what makes God so great. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God, the psalmist tells us, does what he pleases. The God of the Bible, the true God, the Lord who is above all, is the absolutely free being who rules all things. This is very similar to what we find in Psalm 115, verses 1 to 3. Listen to what the psalmist says there. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. So this contrast, the great contrast between God, the Lord, and all pretenders is that the Lord actually resides in the heavens and actually does all that he pleases. Versus these idols who don't actually speak, who are really nothing. Just as Psalm 115 contrasts the Lord who does as he pleases versus the idols of the nations, Psalm 135 has this same contrast, and we'll get to it in a a few moments. But verses 15 to 18, we have these idols being described. And this is contrasted with God, the Lord, above all gods, who is in the heavens doing as he pleases. In verses 6 to 7, They mainly focus on God's doing what he pleases in his creation or in what we might call the natural realm, in the seas and in the sending of rain clouds, of lightning and wind. This is telling us the Lord controls these things. He controls, yes, even the weather. 
Uh, we know there are scientific processes, but these are not absent of God. He did not wind up the world and then just let it go, and he stands back without being involved. God, in his providence, uses these processes, these ordinary providences, to govern the world. So he, he uses these scientific processes. Just because there is a cycle, a scientific uh, truth or a scientific reason or explanation for things does not mean that God is somehow outside of this world and doesn't interact and isn't using those things to uphold and sustain the world. No, it is right to understand that the Lord is the one sending rain That he is the one who sends sun, who sends wind, storms. He is the one who waters the earth by means of the water cycle, weather systems. He is the one who decides if it will be famine or it will be flourishing. If it will be wet or it will be dry. Men like Moses, who wrote the Bible, the author of this psalm as well, they knew there were certain cycles and patterns to the weather. There was something like winter that came every year in, in a lot of places in the world, right? They knew this, and yet they attribute to God ultimately be, being behind these events. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. So verses 6 and 7 deal mainly with God's works in uh, creation, what we might think of as the natural realm, rain and such. But in verses 8 to 14, the psalm discusses God's work in salvation, God's entering into the sphere of humanity, his conquering of kings, his overthrowing of nations, and his delivering his own chosen people to the heritage, the inheritance that he gave to them. That is, God's activity amongst men God doing what he pleases. And once again, Moses and the other authors of the Bible, the Old Testament, they were not stupid. They knew, they knew that they had to get up, make plans, and go conquer the land. They still had to get to work and set out to do it. But they knew that behind their success stood God, the one who gave them their land. God is the ultimate free being. And this is what makes him God. To be God is to be sovereign. When God makes a plan, nothing and nobody can stay his hand. This is so different than pagan deities, man's false idols. It is also very different from how many Christians comprehend God. Many who make God out to be one who is constrained by human beings, limited by what we are going to allow him to do. And this is not so. Here, hear the psalmist. 
under inspiration of the Spirit, tell us whatever the Lord pleases, He does. There are lots of applications of this fact, this reality that God is sovereign, He's above all, He does as He pleases. But I think it's helpful and important to remember this during these days. Uh, We need to recognize that this moment in history is brought to us by the Lord himself, who has his purposes that we may not ever really know. This is a place for us to rest our souls. So this pandemic, or so-called, this pandemic, the politics of the day, the media, overreactions, the reopening plan, all of these things, the Lord rules over. And while it may not be handled as we would desire, while evil may even seize upon this moment to flourish and bring about greater evil and harm to people, we still do not panic. We seek to be salt and light, and where we have opportunity, it's good to give a voice for true righteousness and justice, for human freedoms, for flourishing, and so on. As citizens of this country, we are free to advocate for any rights we are afforded and to reason with our leaders. It is right to look out and to see various concerns in our world today, not just related to this present issue, although it's, it's hard to escape this one. But yet we don't succumb to despair because God will do as he pleases. This doesn't mean everything will feel good or everything will be exactly as we like it. It doesn't mean bad things can't come, but it is a reason to calm our souls before the Lord. We don't pull our hair out. We recognize that it has pleased the Lord to hand us over to this current crisis right now, to give us the leaders in our nation that we do have right now. Again, speak up where you have opportunity, that is good, but calm your soul and be much in prayer and and, and seek first his righteousness, God's righteousness and kingdom. We do not know God's ultimate ends or why this is happening exactly, but we do know that he does as he pleases that his sovereignty has not gone on hold, that it extends to all spheres of life. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is what Habakkuk said when he was faced with God's sovereign plans that were really not ideal for Habakkuk. Remember, if you remember when we went through Habakkuk together a couple of years ago, he complained about the injustice in Israel. And God said, I hear you, 
and I'm, I'm sending the Babylonians to bring judgment. And Habakkuk's complaint was, they are even more wicked than us. That was a difficult pill for Habakkuk to swallow. He had a hard time seeing and understanding why God was working as he was. And yet, as God calls Habakkuk to trust him with this, this is his conclusion, that though everything falls apart, there's no fruit on the trees, the flocks are cut off, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is the God that we praise, the God who is over all and does as he pleases. Verses 8 to 12, we see the psalmist praise the Lord who works redemption for his chosen people. He praises God for his work of redemption. Let's read those verses together. He says, He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, in all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people. It might strike us as odd in a hymn of praise, a hymn calling us to worship and to sing, that there's this recounting of God's judgment of other nations, of the fact that God killed kings, killed mighty kings, it says. But that's what we have. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist speaks of the judgments that God delivered against Egypt when he redeemed Israel out of Egypt from their slavery. In the early chapters of Exodus, the psalmist here refers to the Passover night when the angel of death killed the firstborn of all of Egypt, uh, of man and beast. And the psalmist refers to the fact that the Lord performed various other signs and wonders particularly the other plagues you think of that were aimed at their king Pharaoh. And they were designed to show Pharaoh that the Lord was truly God. Uh, Verse 10 speaks of many kings and many nations whom the Lord struck down and killed. While verse 11 refers to these two individuals, the Sihon and, and Og. Now these were two kings that resided on the eastern part of, eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, So if you remember, when the Israelites had finished their years of wandering in the wilderness, when they came up towards the land of Canaan, they came up the east side of the Jordan River. And then, of course, they they crossed the river quite miraculously and on to Jericho and so on. When they're on the east side, these two kings that are mentioned here opposed the people of Israel. They did not want them to pass through their land and we're told, uh, we, we read about it in, in Numbers 21, but also the first three chapters of Deuteronomy recounts it again. And there we're told again that the Lord delivered these kings into the hand of Israel. Again, notice, these victories were done by Moses and the Israelites going to battle. They had to get up. They went and did this work, but the credit for it was God's. God was active in giving victory to his people. It's something that pleased him to do. Verse 11 reminds us of the many different kingdoms that uh, of Canaan that resided in the land of promise that were defeated when Joshua took the people into the land. So you have this recounting of these judgments. Well, why, why celebrate these judgments? 
Well, first of all, again, this is part of God's name, right? He is just, and justice is good. And so we praise the Lord because he is just. But secondly, these are not just any judgments. These were judgments that were simultaneously the way in which God redeemed and delivered Israel into their land of promise. So again, verse 12, as God judged Egypt, as God judged the Sihon and Og, the Amorites, the kingdoms of Canaan, he is delivering an inheritance to his people, a heritage for them. And then verse 13 says, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. So again, remember God's name. He shows mercy, but he will not clear the guilty. He's merciful, he is just. And often his mercy comes on one person or one group while his judgment is simultaneously falling on another. Also, back in Exodus 33, 19, where the Lord tells Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. We read that earlier. It says, he then says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so God, because he is God and because he does what he pleases, he saw fit to bring judgment upon Egypt, upon the Sihon and Og, the Amorites, all the other Canaanites, while showing mercy to Israel. These two things were happening all at once. And this was not a sort of split-second reactionary kind of decision by the Lord, some sort of fit of rage from a vengeful deity. Way back in Genesis 15, as God promised Abram the land of Canaan, a land that he at that time was sojourning in, and interestingly was, was neighbors with the Amorites, some of the Amorites, and even uh, allied with them in, in Genesis 14, God told Abram that his descendants would themselves sojourn in a land that's not their own for 400 years, and they would be afflicted. And we know that's the land of Egypt. But God told Abram in Genesis 15, 16, that eventually they shall come back here to this land of Canaan, this land of promise, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So for more than 400 years, the Lord continued in patience with the Amorites before finally bringing judgment upon them. This was God's timing. This was God's way. And being God, he has every right to bring about justice. Again, this is his name. And he chose to have mercy upon Israel. And so, if, if, if you are an object of God's mercy, you've received mercy from God, what is there left to do but to worship him, but to praise him, to give him thanks? For it was only because of his good pleasure to show you mercy that you've received it. Because he decided to show you mercy and not judgment. In verses 13 to 14, the psalmist looks ahead to see that indeed the Lord's name and renown will be known forever throughout the ages. 
And he declares that the Lord will bring vindication or a just acquittal for his people. And this will derive from God's compassion to them. So God will finish the work he begins. If he has done all this work in the past that the psalmist is recounting, he will most certainly continue to make his name known forever to those whom he chooses to show his mercy to. And in the fullness of time, as God the Son stepped into the world as a man, the triune God made it even clearer that indeed he will finish what he has begun. And he has made his name, his mercy and his justice, even more clearly made known. And in Christ Jesus, those who believe in him today are likewise saved through judgment. The judgment that sinners deserve has fallen upon the Son, upon Jesus. And in so doing, Jesus has purchased redemption that is far greater than any physical redemption out of slavery from Egypt. He has purchased eternal life and an eternal inheritance for all of God's people. Old covenant believers and new covenant believers making us into one new man. And this salvation is a gift of God's grace in his mercy received by faith, by trusting in Christ Jesus' death and resurrection, which secures this salvation. And so the Lord's name, the one who shows mercy yet will not clear the guilty, is upheld through the work of God's Son. As he takes the guilt of all that the Lord shows mercy to, saving mercy to, all of their sins laid upon the Son, and He pays for those sins. And so God's mercy is up, or God's justice is upheld. His justice is satisfied. The penalty for those, those sins has truly been paid by the Son, and He can show mercy freely. This is what Paul really makes clear in in Romans chapter 3, especially towards the end in verses 21 through 26. God is now both just and the justifier of wicked men. He does does not just sweep sins under the rug or pretend it's no big deal. This is consistent with the name that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. So at the end of all things, all of the Lord's people will be with the Lord eternally in the new heaven, the new earth, our future inheritance. And again, all of this is a gift of God in his grace and mercy to give to those whom he desires to give it to. Those whom he calls out of the world, whom he quickens to respond to the summons to repent and believe. And so if you have the gift of faith that is you believe, then this eternal hope of yours is secured. Indeed, the the name of the Lord will be praised forever. And this is reason for us to worship him now. Judgment has fallen on the Son that those in him may go free. The Passover lamb has been slaughtered that the firstborn might live. Do you hear the voice of God in the gospel call that there is indeed forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, his son? 
that will remove completely your debt of sin. That there is forgiveness that takes you out from under the wrath of God into the blessing of God, into the kingdom of His Son. That this is something received through repentance and faith in Christ. If you believe this, this is just a reason to worship and to praise God. God has shown you great mercy in this. And so make this your praise. Make this your boast. Make this your hope and your confidence. So praise the Lord for the redemption that he has worked for his elect. And this next section calls us to praise God by forsaking false gods. I think that's the implication here. Verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Again, in light of who the true God is, all others are nothing. They're nothing. God is the one who forms has formed all things out of nothing. God is the one who determines the boundaries of men, of nations. He is the one who raises up kings and deposes them. Yet it is the nations who form idols from created things, metals like silver and gold. The Lord is the creator of all things. Other gods are man's inventions while man himself is created by Yahweh. That is a vast, vast difference. These idols do not see, they do not speak, they do not hear, they do not breathe, which is to say they are dead. And verse 18 says, So will it be for those who trust in false gods, who make them and who trust in them. Again, this statement is contrasted with the inheritance and the vindication that the Lord's people will receive. Uh, Verses 12 and verse 14, verse 4 as well. Those who trust in the Lord are forgiven, are saved. Those who look to false gods will be judged. The Lord, we're told in Scripture, is a jealous God. He is not a God that we simply add to our pantheon, a God that we just worship alongside of other gods. Worshiping him is not to be mixed in that way. This is so clear throughout the Bible. And can you, you can see how this is for man's own good. Idols are nothing. It is to our ruin to worship such. So even as God declares himself a jealous God, it is for our own good that he would be that way. And when a person is redeemed to be the Lord's possession, to belong to Him, we are forsaking all others. Idols in our culture are maybe not so much physical idols that we set up in our homes and bow to, though that does still exist. But idols do abound. They abound in the hearts of men. We worship our sports. We worship our money, possessions. We seek Pleasures or entertainment above all things. We worship these things. This is common in our day. 
The reality is the human heart has the capacity to idolize nearly anything. And yet it remains true that these are all impotent gods. They cannot speak. They cannot hear. They cannot save. They are just elements of creation. Let us be on guard against the idols of the heart and bringing false worship practices into our own worship of God. And perhaps if you're listening to this, and you know you've never really worshipped the Lord, that you have been chasing after false gods and worshipping other things, other things have captivated your, your heart, and those are the things you most desire above all things, then this calls you to repent of this, to repent of your sin, and to trust in the Lord. the one who is above all gods. And then this psalm ends here where it began, with a call to worship, a call to praise God. Verse 19 says, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This addresses the nation of Israel the house of Aaron, which is the priestly line, the Levites, who are the temple workers, and then broadens it out to you who fear the Lord. All are called to bless him. And that word bless means to kneel or to bless. So when it's used of man blessing God, it pictures, I think, kneeling in adoration and humility to adore, to worship, to honor God. So blessing the Lord is. It's essentially a synonym of praising him, worshiping him. The God who is above all things is also the God who has been mindful of man and who came down. He drew a people to himself under the old covenant and dwelled specially with them in the temple at Jerusalem. Verse 21, Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. This was a, a footstool of his throne of sorts for the God who cannot be contained by creation. And so this psalm instructs our minds. It instructs our souls about who God is. He is the good, sovereign over all, who does as he pleases. He governs the natural order and he rules over the affairs of man. He is perfectly just and shows mercy upon whomever he will. This is seen in his choosing of Israel and his giving them a land while judging the nations around them, Egypt and the Canaanites and so on. And this justice and mercy of God continues to be seen. This mercy is seen in all whom the Lord draws to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. And this will be further seen on the day that the Lord returns and vindicates his people. If you think of the return of Christ, he is coming in judgment once again. He will draw, he will complete the work of, of saving all of his people. Simultaneously, he will bringing, be bringing about judgment on his enemies. And so as we think of his mercy that is so undeserved... As the Lord's people, objects of that mercy, we just stand back and we must recognize that no good thing has come to us except from God's 
merciful hand as a gift. We have no cause for boasting before him. His name will be worshipped forever. His glory will cover the earth as waters the sea. This God who brought Israel safely out of Egypt and into Canaan will bring all of his people into our eternal rest. And so we praise him, we worship him, we bless his name, we sing together, hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do stand back and we praise you. We, 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 we need your mercy. We thank you for your mercy. We are undeserving. So we just worship you. We thank you. We are grateful to you. Father, we pray that you would pour out this mercy upon many others in these days. That even now, as people are distraught by the, the threat of sickness and all the other losses that are piling up, economic and otherwise, in these days, I pray that unsettled people would be drawn to you. I pray that you would lead us into the path of other people who need to hear this gospel, who need to hear the good news that there is forgiveness and eternal life in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that, uh, that you would cause the joy of your salvation to be strong within us, and that you would work humility in us, knowing that ultimately we, we deserve nothing good from you, but we get what we have as a result of your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your goodness. We thank you for your son. We thank you for making a way of salvation. Thank you for demonstrating to us that you are perfectly just even in the way you show mercy. Father, you are wise, so much wiser than the wisest of men. So we worship you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.